Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between food producers and food consumers. Would Steve Olson, would we consider this your kitchen table? It's not really the kitchen table. Yeah, this is actually the kitchen table. It is a kitchen yep, table. The kitchen's right over there. <laughs> <laughs> One would think that I would know I'm in the kitchen, wouldn't you? Yeah, we would think so. I am in Marshall, Missouri, and it is a red shirt Friday without your red shirt. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's for you. <laughs> you know the story behind the red shirt? Oh. At the end of World War II, the ladies' auxiliary with the VFW suggested that every man, woman, and child wear a red shirt as the men were men and women were returning from the beaches of France and Italy and the South Pacific. Mm-hmm. And just as a subtle gesture to say, thank you for the sacrifice. I learned that while I was speaking at Cannon Air Force Base now 19 years ago. And I thought, why don't we do that now? So every Friday since then, I think I missed two. That's a great idea. Yeah. Thanks thanks for sharing. Thank you for your service. Well, you're welcome. Career, United States Navy. How's a guy that's born off at Air Force Base join the Navy? What happened there? Well, the story of my service goes back to my dad's service. He was uh, in the Navy as well. He got called up during... uh, Korea. Uh, he flew, he was a member of a P2V flight crew that flew around Korea. They were the ones that uh, would do spy mission kind of stuff. And uh, they usually, my dad would say, you know, this is a great mission. I love doing it. But uh, they usually flew these formations on a couple aircraft. And we always got to be the one that went first that would sort of wake them up. <laughs> and then there were the other ones lurking them back in case something happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he was, he was the one that started it. They were stationed at Whidbey Island at the time and, uh, they got uh, transferred to, uh, uh, Georgia. And so I happened to be coming along the line, uh, and since our, our family's from, uh, Nebraska, the Fremont area, uh, we stayed there while I was born at Offutt Air Force Base. And then after a, a month or so, she, we continued all along to Georgia where dad was and, Picked it up there. So, so it's one of those where, good question. How in the world did you become in the Navy and you were born in Nebraska? That's sort of yeah, because the good ocean connection. is all the way, all around us. Yep. So. Although you can find the internet rumor that there are more miles of river in Nebraska than any other state, which is that a rumor? It's not mm-hmm. true. We do have a lot of miles of river. <laughs> yep. A lot of river. Platte River, about 550 miles, Missouri River, some, but. There are states that have more rivers, more miles of river. You know how I know that. I said that it was a state with the most miles of river on the air one day. Oh, yes. And of course. <laughs> and all the friends out there. Exactly. Gave you that right. That's how it works. Yeah. Sure. Uh, like 12 people <laughs> proved me wrong. California's even ahead of us. That really sucks. You, mm. don't, you don't want to be behind California in anything. Yeah, it's true. But they're kind of a really big place. So you It is a really big place. Did you ever consider not joining? The military of any branch? I mean, when your father was... Nope, it was one where, you know, it sort of was the family business. And uh, it wasn't like there was some other thing that jumped up like, oh, I really want to be this, and that uh, would move it out of joining the service. When I was in... uh, my last The last tour that I was still at home, uh, 
with dad was when we were stationed at Pearl Harbor. And so we actually lived uh, on a peninsula which had Navy housing on it. And your back door was Pearl Harbor. And if you look close enough, you could look across the harbor to Fort Island, which is in the center of Pearl Harbor, and see the remains of the USS Utah, which was one of the uh, three ships that uh, were was damaged and sunk uh, at the attack. And it's like, well, there's World War II, like right there, you know, just right, right across the river there, right across the, the bay there. And, of course, the we can go out in the Arizona Memorial, you know, whenever we could. I mean, it's a, it was open. So you got a lot of sense of history, particularly Navy history, because that was a big Navy activity. So from then on, it was always sort of uh, kind of going forward, thinking that would be a good thing to do. And that's just how it connected. I got a scholarship at ROTC at the uh, University of Nebraska, went out there, enjoyed the time there, and I spent a lot of time, 30-some years. And I was a uh, Supply Corps officer, so I said supply, logistics, fuel, contracting, paid the troops, gave them haircuts, fed the troops. You know, it was a, a very wide uh Skill set. All, all of that positions you very well for today because we have supply chain issues and we're not sure how to get people people fed properly anymore. You're in high demand. Yep. I mean, it's one of those. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a total service uh, skill set related to what you do because you're doing stuff for people. You mm-hmm. know uh, that. So I really enjoyed that. Whether or not trying to get some critical part they need to get the radar up or making sure the child's going at midnight when they were doing flight operations and, you know, you just feed people continuously to keep up, keep the air crews going. It was just a very interesting job to do that. And so I did that in all the places I've been. And then I was on uh, my first tour was on a fleet ballistic missile submarine. Uh, we ended up operating out of Scotland. Uh, I went to a fast attack submarine after that. Later on in my career, I was on an Aegis cruiser. My last job was a float. My last afloat job was on a uh, amphibious assault ship, uh, which we embarked Marines on board. And that's an that's an impressive thing to see. You know, the the, the size of the those are really big ships. Uh, but this, but mo- most of the time when they're not embarked, they're very empty because they're made to hold, uh, you know, twelve hundred, fourteen hundred Marines. The crew of the ships only eight or nine hundred. So you have a whole lot of people visiting you when you embark them all. And they bring, you know, uh, 30 aircraft. They bring all their, they have a well deck and they have, uh, all their, if, depending on how they're organized, they can have tanks. They can have, uh, just, uh, tracked vehicles or wheeled vehicles or howitzers or whatever the, the Marines want to bring on whatever mission they are expecting to go on. So, and when they load that place, it's like, uh, a piecework of putting things in. I mean, it's incredible oh, to sure. see how they tuck all that stuff in there to get the max amount of things. And it looks like a, uh, a used car lot for arm for Marine stuff. You know, they just, <laughs> those guys know exactly where everything is and what to do with them. Also, I'm very impressed with, with how that all works. They get it all on, they get it all off. <laughs> so you brought up so many doors to open there, Steve. Number one, uh, obviously you spent your entire career in the water or on the water, water, somewhere in the water. Yep. And you retire and you live in Marshall, Missouri, which is about as far away from any ocean <laughs> as you can get. I mean, you can find a lake, but you can't find yep. the ocean. You must want some stable ground. Well, it's one where, you know, uh, it was more driven by, we want, I wanted to live near where my folks were because uh, they were getting up in age. And 
uh, we, my folks had four sons. I'm number two. And the other three were still actively working. You know, uh, uh, I got the, I was in a position where I could retire and actually sort of retire and not have to find a, a real job afterwards. And when did, when did you retire? Uh, 2007. Oh, okay. Not a fresh retirement. Nope. Not brand new. <clears throat> so I've been here doing stuff since then working on the house for one. And then the other part, uh, I got very involved in the American Legion. So yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, I have to ask you this, and this will probably spill over into the next segment. We think about Pearl Harbor as history and you don't think about Pearl Harbor still acting. Mm-hmm. And when you say you're stationed at Pearl Harbor, it's like, Oh, Oh my goodness. Some, like you were there. What was that like? It was impressive and I'm very impressive to the extent of, it's a very big base. It's got uh, 30 ships, I think, home ported out of there, a, a big mix of mostly submarines and destroyers. Uh, uh, I was, uh, my first job, I was out there. Uh, uh, well, actually, to give you some sense of timing, I was in high school and saw all that stuff, and it was a really big place back then during mm-hmm. the Vietnam War. It was always been a big base. And then when I went back there for my last two careers, I spent all this time in the Navy, Never went through there for thirty years, and so at the end of my career, I got I was went out there to be the supply the the uh, commanding officer of the uh, Leak Industrial Supply Center, which is the you know, large supply center in the Pacific, and it's in historic buildings. The buildings and the warehouses that were there were being built when the attack or, or was was happening. Uh, uh, I look out on piers that had uh, you know the warships at it. Uh, right out of the window, I looked at. Uh, if I looked uh, just a little bit uh, south, you can see the Arizona Memorial and the buoys that mark the sh- the, uh, the the bow and the stern and the water. And the at the time, at their uh, battleship row along Fort Island, they had these huge thing called uh, mooring islands, and they're basically where they they had bollards on it, and that's where you tied the battleships up to. And they're all still in place around the island, and uh, uh, so you can just see exactly where the ships were. Uh, on the on the day of the attack, uh, the Missouri is parked out there now as a big uh, 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 historic site and tourist center. You'll have to show me. Roll route. I was playing on the show me state. Uh, yep. Roll route. We'll take a break. Okay. We'll be back with more Steve Olson. Retired United States Navy quickly reminding you that we have the ability to turn the lights on and the water comes in the house without carrying it in in a pail. That's thanks to Lignite and the folks behind the scenes at the coal business. It's all about a reliable source of energy. Get more details about the people that make it happen at Lignite.com. We'll be back with more Steve Olson after this. Welcome back. Roll route, Trent Loose, alongside Steve Olson, uh, retired Navy. You should have saw the look on your face when I said, you'll have to show me. <laughs> it was just my way of breaking into your conversation telling you, I got to get out of here. Not a problem. Uh, you so- know, there's newbies and this kind of stuff. <laughs> and so they have an interesting mix of retaining the history out there because they do have new building going on. They're adding things. But uh, And I, I had the fortune of living on an, in a house on Fort Island uh, when I was attached, to, when I was assigned there. And these houses were there at the time of the attack. They're plantation houses. Uh, they were built in the 20s, these beautiful old things. And the rest of the Fort Island uh, used to be the Naval Air Station out there that was active at the time of the attack. And you can drive around the place. Uh, 
and uh, when the the naval when when they had their full complement of aircraft there uh, at the time, they would line them all up on the aprons, and that's how they serviced them. That's where they maintained them. But when the Japanese attacked, you know, you can see these long runs of uh, in the in the the old uh, concrete where they'd be, you know, holes, 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 and then a wide gap that didn't have anything, and then holes, 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 holes. That's all still there. And what the what those things indicated is when there were no holes, that's where an aircraft had sat, and they oh. just strafed down these uh, long long run of sh- of aircraft. And just shot them all up while they were all parked there. And it's the history still there. You can still go there. You can still touch them. You can still stand back and look at it and see the big, if not if, when you know what it is, it's very impressive because you can say, holy cow, there's, you can, there are 14 aircraft here. You can count all the holes, all the spots between the, uh, the rifle shots and the, uh, the, the hangars are all still there. There's a large naval air uh, museum out there. I think it's the aviation museum of the Pacific's on Fort Island. Which they have captured and collected aircraft from throughout the time there, so it's a very great place to see. And, and uh, when you go over to Hickam Air Force Base, which is right next to Pearl Harbor, uh, they actually have retained. There was a lot of talk to, oh, we have to make the buildings look like we weren't attacked back at the time, and so they decided not to do that. And so that has their own history. You can have like the headquarters buildings, which were uh, a concrete sort of structure, and they have the the marks where the shots were. And they just have painted over them over the years. They didn't fill them up with any kind of filler. Right. And so you can see the same thing. Here's the history of what happened here. And uh, you retain that kind of stuff. Because you don't want to forget it. You don't want to make it go away. It was sort of a really big event. And uh, you can't forget that kind of stuff. And particularly there where you have lots of history, because these are the buildings that were here, uh, you know, the structures and uh, this is what happened here and something we should never forget. Plus you look out in the, in the, uh, Pearl Harbor and you can always see the Arizona Memorial spanning the area, the remains of the USS Arizona. So. So Hawaii being one of two states I've not been to, hmm. um, I am assuming that you would have the same feel as I get when I go to Gettysburg. Yep. It's very, cause you, you have to take a boat out to the memorial. There's a landing there that uh, has a historic site and, and kind of uh, museum things. And you take boats, they're, tour- they're chartered, you go out to the uh, memorial. And it's very quiet as you go out there. You know, uh, you'd think it'd be really noisy because it's a, a working a harbor, but it's very quiet. And you get there, it's very uh, uh, quiet when you get on the memorial itself. It's a, it's a long span. I can't remember how long it is, but uh, it's got large windows. You can look and out of both of the windows on both sides of it and see the, uh, the structure or the, the ship underwater. And, uh, over the years, uh, there was plans that they wanted to take it out. They wanted to, you know, uh, squeeze it down by, you know, there's a, a process. If you put a lot of explosive on top of it, you'll force it into the, into the mud, something and they reduce it, but it still has, you know, 1100 members who died on it, still buried on it. So it's sort of not the way you really wanted to take care right. of that. And it's very, uh, you, 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 when you're out there, you're very humbled by it. As you walk on it from one end, at the very far end, they have the names of all the sailors that died on the thing. Uh, it's just very, you, you, though people don't talk, just through the nature of it, it's very quiet and people don't talk mm. when they walk through this thing. So it's, uh, it's uh, very impressive. And then, of course, you can look down, if you look out one side, you can see all the, uh, 
the mooring islands from all the battleships that were there and just kind of know, okay, that's where the California was. That's where the West Virginia was. That's where the Oklahoma was. Uh, and of course, Missouri's right there in the middle. So you have the beginning of the war with the Arizona Memorial, and then the end of the war with the uh, Missouri, where the uh, treaty was signed on the deck of the Missouri in Tokyo Bay. And it's like beginning and the end of this thing. You know, how, how, how impressive could that be? So what's the system behind naming a ship? Why is it in Arizona? Why is it in Missouri? What's the significance of? Oh, like everything, there's a tradition to how, you know, they would do it. And, uh, it was based on the, the battleships were all based on capital ships, you know, which were considered the battleships and they were state, uh, connected to states because that was sort of the highest, uh, tr- highest honor you can give a, a state to remember is to have a battleship named after them. Mm-hmm. So, so the majority of all the battleships or actually all the battleships at the time were all named after states. And it's just a matter of, you know, you know, uh, I think since there's a political point to getting a ship named something, there's always states who would want to press the, you know, the Secretary of the Navy, uh, uh, to name it after something or to whatever it is after some particular state. And that's just how it all worked. And over time, you know, uh, it's changed. Like, uh, now capital ships, we don't have battleships anymore. Uh, uh, so submarines now have taken on the mantle. It was at one time the large uh, class, the Ohio class of fleet missile submarines, the USS Ohio class, that, that dozen or so were named after states. And then more recently, the Virginia class uh, has come about, which are attack submarines, and they're carrying on the tradition of naming after states. And matter of fact, the USS Missouri now is uh, one of the Virginia class submarines. And uh, the the tradition used to be that destroyers are named after uh, or cruisers are named after cities uh, following the tradition of states have uh, capital ships. The cruisers is the next in size. So cities had a, were named after that. Uh, the USS Honolulu is one. I think the uh, Omaha was one. I mean, there, there are hundreds of things during World War II. And then smaller down from that, you had destroyers, which are named after either important people or important uh, folks in history or associated with the Navy, uh, uh, and then they had everything from uh, uh, ammo ships were named after sources of fire, uh, night, the USS Nitro. The, oh, know, really? There's there's all these sort of uh, I'm, I'm a bit rusty in all those things now, mainly because they've changed all that up now. Sure. So they they no longer follow that the tradition of that uh, protocol. The carriers are the big one ships now. There's more than so. just one tradition that's no longer <laughs> in the military. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I have to ask you this, particularly since uh, you were a commander and 9-11 happened. There was a whole fleet of people, I stole a Navy term there, a whole fleet of people that joined for patriotism. What was it like to you because you were already in there? Well, I've got kind of an interesting twist to that. Uh, A lot of people joined up. It was incredible to see the surge. Uh, of course, it, it happened. Flags would show up on houses almost instantaneously after the event. All the patriotism that went along with that, which was fine and good. And uh, it's interesting that uh, currently, you know, uh, the first, uh, I can't remember when I first read it and it came to realize it. Uh, a couple of years ago, the first wave of people who retired after 20 years that came in at 9-11 have all sort of worked their way through, you know, mm-hmm. so you don't think about that. But uh, 
Uh, I had I had a, an interesting story because I was at the Pentagon on the morning of 9/11. Oh wow! Uh, the the Pentagon had been going through this huge uh, modernization. It was only built the last five or six years uh, when it was built because they needed it quick, and it's been going strong since then. So technology and size and scope and people have all made it a bad place to be, just living wise. So they had this uh, multi-billion-dollar scheme to fix all five wedges and they took each wedge out, moved the service out someplace else and took uh, several years to take each wedge and put new electrical and new sanitation, new power or whatever. In it. So the first one that was done was the army wedge. And that was the side where the, the aircraft crashed into it literally was just opening up again. We had a, uh, I was over there for a budget meeting uh, for the next fiscal year that was coming up and uh, was going to be expected to be a very lean year because of you know, not needing to have large serve military anymore. So there right. were lots of stuff being chopped out of it. And so we were in the conference, the Army Finance Conference Room with the for the Navy. Uh, they just happened to borrow it. And it was a beautiful facility. But we had the meeting. We got run out because uh, someone needed to use it because conference rooms in the Pentagon are very scarce. So we got uh, run out, and I had to run. And I had another meeting outside the building. That side is the opposite of where the buses are that run between the Pentagon and other places in Northern Virginia. So I had just run across the building, caught the next bus, and was driving. The bus was taking us away when nine eleven occurred, and the airplane crashed in the into the building. So. Yeah, you know, I, 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 every, every once in a while, particularly around 9 11, I'm thinking to myself, if I had stopped at the ATM to get some money, right? I may not have been here yeah. today. Yeah. Uh, Steve, hold that thought. It's already that time. Free and fed America is dependent upon you. Steve Olson's done his part. What are you going to do? Get more details about empowering yourself to be a dutiful citizen at protecttheharvest.com. We'll be back with the second half of Roll Rock right after this. Welcome back. We're all route. Trent Luce alongside Steve Olson. We're sitting in Marshall, Missouri in the heart of Saline County. Fantastic event last night. You missed the Lincoln Day dinner. Shame on you. You missed a great brisket. Yep. I heard that bris- their briskets are great. Yeah. So you're stationed at Pearl Harbor. You're in the Pentagon on 9-11. I mean, you're like in the middle of all these things from our historical perspective. Yep. Very, very interesting uh, sort of two contexts there. Uh, and also an interesting point that uh, when I was on the WASP, it's an LHD, it's a big deck uh, amphib ship. Uh, we were to had the honor of going up to New York City in 98 for what's called Fleet Week. And the, New York does it. No, they do it in Seattle and Portland where they, the Navy has ships that show up. It's a big PR kind of thing. Uh, the citizens can visit the ships. The, it's New York is a great place to take care of sailors. That's for sure. So, uh, we were in there. You, know, you couldn't, if you wore a uniform, you couldn't, uh, those that partook didn't have to bring a nickel along with them because every place they went, they got food, they got drink, they got, uh, whatnot. And so, uh, uh lots of, in, lots of the organizations around gave tours and gave, uh, uh, stuff for picnics and, and whatnot. And so, one of the one of the tours was offered by uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, Wall Street companies that they would let you come down and 
uh, actually, they took you on the floor, the stock exchange floor. And I was always found that very interesting, mm-hmm. that whole thing. So they, you know, they, they got it. There was three of us, uh, four of us. I found, I found it surprising that of all these ships, no one wanted to go. Right. So I was like, Hey, I want to go see this. So we went downtown. Uh, we were on the trading floor. Uh, and we sat at the time, you know, the, uh, I guess there's a TV show that does, uh, uh, that, that it's live on the floor there. I can't remember who it, who it was, but, uh, uh, they would, they were up off the floor. You can see that you were in the back of them. So you see the back of them getting videoed and the cameras for everything. And you're down there with all the, oh, dad, oh, 14 by, oh. <laughs> and this, it's like, this is like, this is the heart of, you know, business in America's right. little set of footprint here. So they showed, showed us around stuff. They went to their offices and what they, what they did. They were a bond trading. Uh, entity. Uh, they took us to the top of the uh, trade center for the the restaurant up there. We had lunch. Uh, it was an, an impressive time. That, that's the kind of stuff I wanted to see. So it was really nice. And the thing, one of the things that came to my mind later, you know, zoom ahead to nine eleven, is that and, and then watching the slow the slow march of the buildings falling down was, you know, the guys that took us up there to show them what they did for a living were in that building. It's a high probability they're not there anymore. Right. You know, uh, uh, it was it was one of those personal things that uh, uh, I made the point on one of the nine eleven ceremonies we did was you know the, the guy's name was Dave. It took us around. He was a uh, he was retired from the Navy. He was f fourteen backseater, so he was the Rio on an f fourteen, and so he loved talking about. You know, he's an aviator. They love talking about stuff. They're aviators. That's what they do. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, uh, but, uh, he was a great guy and the problem, I, I hit myself because when I think about it, cause I can't even remember the guy's name besides just Dave, uh, who took us around and it was very impressive the time he took to show us stuff and to take care of us. And, and, uh, uh, but I, I, I checked with the websites of people and I'm pretty sure he didn't make it through, uh, uh, the attack on the towers, but it's one of those poignant points in, in life of what you run across and what you see and what sure. happens every day that you may not expect to happen. And, uh, you know, things are gone in a flash. So, yeah. But of all the things I've done in my tour, uh, my time in, in, in the Navy, it's some of those things are, 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 are very poignant. Like on my, on the submarine that, uh, the first submarine I was on was a fleet ballistic missile submarine. Their job in life is to be quiet underwater. And if, uh, they get the, uh, the release authority. Their job is to send some bad things down line to whoever it was we're targeting. And, uh, and we have lots of drills on doing that. And there's a whole protocol you go through to make sure that, uh, that it is a drill you're about to do. Yeah. So someone doesn't do anything bad. And, uh, when the first time I was in the submarine and the first real one, you do it in training all the time. But when you're actually on the boat and you do it, this thing runs through your life, through your, through your soul for a second of, you know, Unless this could turn out to be very bad, unless the CO says at the end of his announcement, this is a drill. Yeah. Uh, and the, the part of the protocol is to do that so that they don't actually do that for real. And uh, the first one he did it, the CO was like a, a second short. It's like he had to stop to take a breath. And he, he has this, this uh, spiel he has to make an announcement was of what we're going about to do when we got the release, when we got the, the message. And, uh, and he took a breath, and so I'm thinking, oh, my God, don't tell me the first time I'm out here we're going to do this. You know, it's like this is not what I wanted to do. 
but it was a drill. Everyone stood down, uh, went well. But you just get to the point of this is what we do for a living on the ship. This is our, our mission, and this is uh, an incredible thing to have all these young people you know, uh, lined up to do and and standing in line to do and supporting the do because it's not something else that you see a whole lot of 19, 20, 25 year old people doing for a living that has this kind of ramifications down line. You know, I mean, and it gave me an appreciation for just what at that time, my whole, my whole perspective was Navy with these, with these sailors and, uh, and officers did uh, on this ship to do the nation's mission if called to do it. So. I, I want to spend a moment there because through the All-American Beef Battalion and Bill, the late Bill Brody's vision of a Vietnam veteran created All-American Beef Battalion where we have fed nearly 500,000 upon deployment mm-hmm. or return from deployment over a 12-year period of time. And so I've personally been to Fort Carson several times, Fort Bliss, uh, Texas. I can't think of the one right now. Texas, uh, Colleen, Texas. Yep. Doesn't matter. Um, these are kids. You just said it. 18, 19 year old. They're kids. And it is the undoubtedly the greatest warrior mechanism in the world. And they're just kids. It's incredible. I mean, the, the, when you look at ships, like, like, uh, the, the, the age, the COs or the senior enlisted, they're usually the two oldest ones and they may be just be 43, 44, right. you know, 45. But the vast majority of the group are young. And so they're the 20 to 22, the 23, you know, uh, age, uh, individuals. And it's when you look at that, it's like, and they work hard. They, I mean, it's life on life in the service. Can be really crummy at times, you know. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, uh, and so all these people get. And, and at that time, I was in. It was early seventies. We got. If you think of the pay, any no one today would take that sort of money, you know. Even though, of course, inflation's moved it up, but but that little amount of money to do it's what they still not to do. It's still not an enticement for no, somebody. I'm going to go join the army because it pays well. Yeah, that's right. You don't that's do that. You're right. No. Yeah. So uh, Fort Hood. It hit me when you're talking about. Uh, had to get it out there. Uh, the other part that I learned by being on the bases, and you were married during this time, mm-hmm. is that we often think about and say thank you to those who serve, but for not only those who are in the military, whichever branch it may be, there's parents, there are spouses, there are kids that are spending time in anxiety, not knowing what's going on, particularly during deployment. And what I learned through that process is that currently of the deployed men and women in the United States military, 84% of those marriages end in divorce. That doesn't get much attention. And yeah. that's a sacrifice it is. that people are making. And I, I've said that in sp- speaking to audiences before, and I've invariably had a number of people come up to me after me and say, you're talking about me. And thanks for bringing it up. That is important. Because the, I'll, I'll give you the example of the Navy. And this, I know all the services have their own protocols they set up when they when they set up to deploy. But the the, the the object of the Navy is at the time was a six or seven or eight month deployment where you're gone. But the workups to get there are almost as bad as the deployment part. At least when you get to the deployment part, you know you're gone. You left you left your home port. You'll right. be back. Right. You know, and you're overseas someplace. But the first part of it. 
you're doing lots of, you know, overnights in and out a week out, you know, work up with this group, you know, the aircraft come on and do some aircraft stuff. The Marines come on, you do, I mean, it's just end after end after end after end. Plus you're doing all your equipment repairs because you got to keep all that stuff up. It's a very hard time. And those are the, the ones that's really bad because you're at a pier. If you looked out real close, you could probably see where you live maybe, but probably not. But the point is you're right there at home yeah. and you can't get off because you got to do something to get ready to go. At least when you're in the middle of the ocean, Hey, I know you're in the middle of the ocean. You ain't right. going anywhere. So yeah, right. right. That's a lot of time. Uh, kids have parents that aren't gone. I mean, we, my dad grew, we grew up, my dad, we were in Norfolk at the time and he was on a ship that, uh, deployed. It was a supply ship that spent its whole time in the Mediterranean. And this was back in the sixties. And, uh, we, I remember mom got, getting a call one time. It was like the, the call she got uh, from dad because they were home ported and just think trying to get a, a, a phone call from Italy to Norfolk. In the sixties, it was probably next to nothing right. as far as making it being successful and doing that. So they had a, 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 a great talk. Uh, and when I was on the wasp and we deployed, it was, uh, what was that? Like 97 ish. And so, uh, we pulled into the same pier that my dad's ship was moored at back in the day. Oh my goodness. And, uh, in, uh, uh, Naples. And at the time they had the service where, you know, you could go down, the USO would come on. If you pay a dollar or $10, they had a cell phone and you could just dial and call anywhere. And of course, this is late nineties. And so I'm sitting here, like I made a point of getting the phone, standing on the flight deck and going, dad, this is where the USS Altair used to park when you were on it. And I'm on a phone talking to you right now <laughs> from the very same spot. And it took almost nothing to make this happen. Yeah. You know? and, and now they're FaceTiming and, oh, yeah. and now it's, yeah. Zooming and everything else. Yeah. Communication's completely different. Steve Olson, we need to take a break. When we come back in our last segment, we're going to talk about the American Legion. You know anything about the American Legion and Marshall, Missouri? Yeah, I've heard about those things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the community, and we need to make sure that we are a part of it. That's what we're going to do when we get back. I want to remind you about Certified Piedmontese. This is a system that we are a part of with our own beef cattle operation. It's all about the tender aspect. I don't know if that brisket we had last night was Piedmontese or not. It was tender enough to be Piedmontese. Certified Piedmontese is tender because of the myostatin gene. Two copies of that myostatin gene present in the sires that we use, which means your calves will have one genetic copy of that tenderness gene. Consequently, the consumer wants to buy it time in and time out. That's why it works. You can get more details, see the products, and the what I call the protein plethora on the line at www.certifiedpiedmontese.com. And just before we go, I want to say thank you to the Wall of Honor. I truly believe as much time as I spent with the All-American Beef Battalion, this is the next wave of showing appreciation, thewallofhonor.org. It is a, it's not like a traveling wall. This is just a monitor that businesses and institutions put up with a box of those local individuals that are veterans, active duty, or first responders. TheWallOfHonor.org. We're back with our Wall of Honor, Steve Olson. We'll get back with more after this. Welcome back. Roll route, Trent Luce on a red shirt Friday, sitting at the kitchen table with Steve Olson in Marshall, Missouri. That's Saline County, you know, just, uh, just down the road from Malta Bend. Yep. Everybody knows where Malta Bend is. And you had to correct me during the break, but you should correct me on air. You're not 
commander for the Marshall Post. Yep, I'm the uh, I'm the adjutant at the Multiband American Legion Post, right out there in the cornfield, uh, the blue building. You uh, you go past the school, and there you are. So when we have corn out there, you can't see us. When we have beans, pretty easy to find. So, so when somebody, if you're sitting on an airplane flying somewhere, and you tell them that you're with the American Legion, they say, "What is that? How do you respond?" Typically, depending on their age group, typically the the thoughts are, "Oh, American Legion." Those are the old guys that sit around in the bar and smoke and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and no, that's the VFW. That's the VFW. That's not, that's not us. But the, because it's one of those, uh, it carries over, I guess, from, from generation to generation is, uh, and, and the sad part is that's sort of how it works is, uh, the, the, that, 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 like that take the American, the American Legion. They were founded in March 19, 1990, 1919. Their 104th anniversary is this Sunday. And every sequence of, uh, war fighting groups sort of go up in the group, in the Legion, and then they go down. And the next one kind of comes in and then goes down. So you have the World War One guys, and then the, it turned out with the World War Two guys, and the Korean people, and the Vietnam folks, and then the Desert Storm kind of group. Uh, and then sort of the perpetual war group, which is the current ones we have, which is, uh, and each of the, each of those different war fighting entities, uh, or uh, generations had stuff they did and things they worked to and their lifestyle was very different. I mean, the joiners for the Korea, the, uh, World War II people was, uh, just, you know, they were out doing everything anytime, anywhere, uh, and uh, the Vietnam people, it took a while for them to come in just because they had such a bad uh, reception trying to not to say muscle into, but come into the uh, the service organizations because there was a perception of the folks that were there. Hey, we won our war. You guys screwed up yours. Right. You know, and so that, uh, plus you're all hippies, long hairs and, you know, all that stuff. So that was always a challenge. So it took a while, I think, for them to be fully embraced and and, and get fully accepted. And now it's a challenge, uh, I think, personnel-wise, uh, trying to get people to join because people are very busy doing what's what we consider the rural world stuff. And joining a service organization is not so much top of their list anymore. But that's sort of how it is for everything nowadays. You know, mm-hmm. churches don't see the, the 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 people coming in. You know, the Knights Columbus don't see the same kind of people coming in. The service organizations, all those kind of things. And so what we do is we remember, uh, our, our, uh, those that came before us because without them, we wouldn't be here. So we remember all the veterans before us and remember the families because families are important because they support the veteran in so many different ways and they have a much more difficult way to support the veterans because many times their spouses aren't here. They're out doing whatever it is sure. the service sends them to go do for extended periods of time. And, uh, we remember, we honor our country, we honor our veterans, and we honor, honor the families. Uh, and we do a lot of things that, uh, aren't particularly just, you know, military type stuff. Uh, we have scholarships that we provide to students. We, uh, support Boy Scouts, uh, Girl Scouts, uh, organizations. Uh, we support, uh, schools themselves. We have donations. Uh, we've done, we just did big, big donation to DECA for, uh, they're uh, supporting them going on into their uh, state and international uh, competitions. It's things you do to support the organization. And as 
uh, individuals in this room knows, we do blood drives. So we have a couple of them a year. We have them out at the post. Uh, it's a great setup for people to do it. Uh, I, I love having the uh, or, uh, the Kansas City uh, uh, the Community Blood Center of Kansas City out because they do such a great job with their their staff set up, you know, get professionally going, do it all, take it all down. And it's like, as, as if when they're gone, they weren't even there, you know, and, uh, and it's another small drop in the bucket, but you need all those little small drops in the bucket to keep the, uh, the blood supply safe. So we have to have a bucket and then you have to start filling the bucket one drop at a time, right. whether it's acquiring blood or being a part of a vibrant part of a community. Yeah. And you left out the one thing that American Legion does that so many young men participate in every summer. Oh, boy state, girl state. Yeah. American Legion baseball. American Legion baseball. Yep. Which was created by a gentleman in wartime effort from South Dakota. I think he's from Brookings. Yep. You're right. It's, I was a, I played American Legion baseball, traveled all over the country. Quincy. I didn't grow up in Nebraska. Quincy, Illinois. It was a great time. So we heard a hint and it shouldn't be any secret that, um, it's a struggle. It's a, uh, did you say you didn't say it was a struggle? But I think it's a struggle to keep these service organizations yep. going. It's a how struggle. How much of a struggle is it? Well, it's just a challenge because, uh, as one of the uh, officers at the Department of Missouri, and they, uh, each state has an entity that's your overhead overseeing one, and they're called referred to as the department. I think it's an army kind of thing. But uh, each of these folks will say the challenge that the service organization have is to keep it going with the current people until the next generation can find the time to come join. And uh, it's very true to an extent because you know, I, I think of what uh, my, we don't have any children, but we have uh, nieces and nephews and of the generation where they're now, the children are like 30, but knowing what they did with all the activities they had with all these kids, uh, plus work, plus do everything else. It's like, you can't you can't shoehorn any more stuff into it than trying to do uh, go to a legion meeting or a VFW meeting or support the dinner they have put on for something or other or supporting going out and setting up and taking down the blood drive or I mean it's like there's a lot of time that goes into what the legion people do for others and the challenge is until you get to the point where the people see the challenge and they can support it it's hard for them to want to work it in it's like the old saying is I used to have a CO or an XO usually because XOs are the ones that drive this stuff. You get at the morning meeting, they'll hand out the, the 12 number one projects. You got the goo. They have to be done today, but you only got eight people. So you're like, well, which half of <laughs> I find everyone, a number one project. I've got four. They ain't going to get done. You know, yeah. it's like, we can't have everything can't be number one. We have to, you know, so, but, uh, but there's a challenge with uh, getting uh, into, into pe- folks to join and, and staying active. Uh, and also contribute in where they can. And uh, one of the challenges that I find is the adjutant, because that's kind of the job to sort of to round people up, is uh, you want to keep them involved. You want to keep them as part of it. But you really can't expect everyone to be there at every meeting right? because you just can't. We realize that. But you want to make sure that they're still getting the benefit of what the Legion does uh, for them. And there's lots of benefits uh, that they have. But they just we, we just ask them, please stay connected to us. Uh, and when come out when you can support something. And if it's something you want to do that you don't see us doing, by all means, let us know. Because there are things that if, if people want to do, and if, particularly if they want to lead it, uh, we can do. 
you mentioned all of the areas where you donate and assist in scholarships and even if you want to include baseball, all of that money has to come in from somewhere. Yep. Because you'd be like my ranch. You're constantly spending, but you got at some point inject too. Yep. How's that happen? No, we have a, we're very fortunate. Uh, Malta Ben has a Saturday night bingo uh, out at the organization. All that money comes in. It all goes back out to the community because uh, by this, the state uh, gaming commission rules, uh, we can't keep it to do stuff with if it's not related to, you know, charitable, uh, philanthropic or religious uh, charity sort of stuff. So, it all goes back to the community into scholarships, into boy state, girl state, uh, seats, into, uh, uh, funding, uh, baseball, into buying flags for schools and, and, uh, and, uh, organizations that need a flag to, uh, uh, we bought laptops for, uh, multi-bend one time in the past. Uh, we provided, uh, some, uh, some items to, uh, Miami, uh, school, uh, in the past. We bought, band uniforms for some entities. We bought the band instruments for other entities. It's one where if there's a need to help cover a requirement, you know, we could, we have a, we're, we're very beneficial in having a uh, uh, bingo that supports it. And we do it every Saturday night. People come in and it's, uh, it, 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 that's a challenge too, because you need to staff up and run it. But uh, it is one of those things where we're fortunate we have that because that brings in the money that we can turn around and give back to the community. So. Sure. Steve, final thing, because we're down to the last two minutes. Uh, it's no secret that our morale and probably our patriotism are at an all-time low in my lifetime. How do we fix that? Well, people just need to remember what it is that we do, what, what it is that people do for them. I mean, the, the, the service, uh, the military are here to, to – defend the country, but someone needs to remember what it is that they are here for. And it's not just to drive around in trucks or, or park by the, uh, at the armory and do things. They're here and they spend most of their time someplace else. You need, the people need to remember that. They need, they need to honor that. They need to honor our country because this is what the, what the soldiers, sailors, uh, Marines and, uh, Coast Guard men are here to do. And they need all of the help and support they can get because a lot of times, they're not wanting to go do this stuff perpetually, but they kind of have to. Uh, and they just need to have the, the support, the remembering why it is these people are doing it and help them do it. Help them when they come back, help them when they leave, help their families when they're gone. So. And I'm going to close with, uh, I always pack this around in my pocket, Steve. It's what you took an oath to protect. In fact, you can have that one. But I was told by a four-star general in the United States Marine Corps, Jamie Williams, he said, you need to honor those who have served. And the best way to honor them is to exercise the rights that they have protected for us. And that yes. at the end of the day, if you don't use those rights and exercise those rights, you're not saying thank you. You're not giving honor in the proper way. And most importantly, you will lose them. You and your colleagues have enabled us to have the opportunity to maintain this freedom, but it is up to us to keep it happening. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your service and your closing profound bits of wisdom of the day are get out there and help, uh, help veterans do, do smart stuff for your community, support your people in your community, support your leaders. And, uh, this is, this is a game to make everyone to make the country good and make the country better. It's not a one versus another. We need to kind of get out of that. So support and defend the constitution 
uh, by all ways. Protecting the United States and the citizens of this country from enemies, foreign and domestic. We've successfully journeyed down the road connecting food producers to food consumers, saying thank you and giving honor to all of those who have enabled our ability to continue to be a free and fed America. For Steve Olson, I'm trying to lose both of us, reminding you that all roads do lead to a rural route. Quickly reminding you, Perotic Auctions has that sale April the 12th. The next land auction for Perotic Auctions is near Murdo, South Dakota. Details about that can be found at ParodicAuction.com. That's Perotic Auction, P-I-R-O-U-T-E-K, ParodicAuction.com. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday.